As we go to the scripture this morning, it's again another really short one. And we sang it in first service this morning. Um, today we're just going to hear it. But, but Melinda, I, read it twice, would okay. you? Just read it twice and listen to these words. Listen carefully to the requirement that God gives. He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Holy Wisdom. Uh, I tried um, to, to sit on the teaching chair this morning. Um, couldn't do it. Got to wander. Uh, just that, partly because we've got a fair amount to cover this morning, and I just wanted to stay focused on my notes, but I think I'm going to wander today. I'm going to throw out a couple names to you this morning. And if you want to react to them, it's fine with me. You can react to anything you want this morning, okay? Anything, in any way that is appropriate as long as you don't throw things. We have children in the front row. <laughs> Rush Limbaugh. Sean Hannity. The Huffington Post. Fox News Network. NPR, Ralph Nader, Betsy, that was a nice reaction, Ron Reagan, and of course, of course, pretty much the king of them all beyond Rush Limbaugh, Howard Stern. As I read this next list, what I'd ask you to do is place yourself somewhere on a spectrum of how you would respond to these issues. The conflict in Gaza where children have been killed. Gun control and extended background checks. The bombing of Iraq. A $15 minimum wage. Or how do you feel about our current president? We are absolutely surrounded, absolutely surrounded every day by political rhetoric. Absolutely surrounded. We can try and choose not to engage in it. We can try and choose not to listen to it. We can try and choose not to be influenced by it. But we are surrounded by it every day, whether it's the AM dial, the FM dial, satellite radio, Fox News Network, CNN, C-SPAN, whatever it is, we are surrounded by this. And somehow, I think, where all too many churches have come, maybe, is they feel like they need to be insulated from any of that and not respond. All of it is politics. Politics. I'm going to talk in a little bit about what that means today and how that has changed, I think, over the last 30 to 40 years. But the word politics simply means these two things. Of or relating to citizens or, and, affairs of the cities and populations. 
Really what it means, uh, if you look at kind of the culmination of the definition, it means to influence others toward a position that you feel is correct. Influencing others toward a place that you feel is correct. What's interesting in looking and preparing for this sermon that the, the whole kind of political arena started um, a long, long, long time ago in ancient history all centered around war and conflict and conquering. That was what was at the center of politics back in that day. And I feel to some extent we have now returned to that place. In antiquity, we see politics being written about by folks like Plato and Aristotle and even Confucius. We see Sun Tzu and the art of war. We even can go back to Thomas Aquinas, one of the great theologians, and his response to a just war theory. But the question is, what does it mean for us today? Now, I'm going to quote the source of this in a few moments, but I will tell you that Rich was talking to me, and Rich and I have these wonderful exchanges all the time, which probably ended today now that I've called him out on this. <laughs> but, but Rich turned me on to this book, and I'm not going to tell you who the author is of the book is, so don't share it yet. I'm going to let you know who it is later on because I'm going to quote from the introduction. But the premise of this book is that we have entered into a new era. And this new era is across the board, no matter where politicians are standing on the spectrum today, there is an emerging kind of group, a powerful group, who are now shifting and changing the conversation, moving toward a much more bridge-building, affirming, accepting, oriented kind of position. And that what that is doing, as these are engaging in that kind of conversation politically, is it is literally changing the landscape of politics in the 21st century. But it's even going beyond changing the landscape of politics, it's also changing the landscape of corporate culture. Everything is shifting and changing, and the dividing lines that have so delineated parties seems to be beginning to disappear. But listen to these words. These are the words out of his introduction to the book Unstoppable. Unstoppable is the name of the book. He writes this. When thinking about the genesis of this book, I remember the days of working in my family's restaurant. The premises were spacious, a long lunch counter and many booths filled with townspeople, jurors from the local courthouse, summer residents at the local lakes and camps, salespeople, and travelers driving along busy Route 44 in Connecticut. In those non-fast food days, family restaurants were conveners of talkers not just eaters. There was much ado about local and larger politics and lots of free associative talk about the Yankees and Red Sox rivalry. Go Sox. I'm sorry. Or even what was going on in the many local factories lining the town streets. Working the counter and the booze was a great education, he says and writes. It was conversation central with humor, ribbing candor, and that famous Winston raspiness, that northeastern drawl. People didn't hide their party affiliation, most, mostly Democrat and Republican. They didn't need to. It was safe to be who you were. Neither did they pigeonhole themselves or others when they gave their opinions or rendered their judgments. They weren't all friends by any means, but they certainly weren't enemies either. All speaking, I love this phrase, 
as companionable individuals in the small town where everyone knew each other's ethnicity, religious denomination, and business on so many levels. He said, I listened more than I talked. Therefore, I learned. End quote. As I read that, I kept wondering what we were teaching our children today. I kept wondering if they were sitting at a lunch counter somewhere and there were political discussions going on, what would they be walking away with after those discussions? I think if they watched CNN or even C-SPAN or some other places where political rhetoric happens all the time, what would they be saying about all of that at this point? I wonder even if they were walking through this church and hearing the way that we talk to each other or how we talk to each other or what we talk about, what would they be learning? And don't get me wrong, that is not necessarily a criticism because I think in this church they would see love in significant ways. Our children are little professors. And I saw this in my office between services. As one of our newer young families, she's, she's six years old and wanting to be baptized. And she's drawing on this thing, and her mom is making these comments, and as she's drawing, she said, I heard that. <laughs> they listen carefully, and they watch even more carefully. But I've got to tell you, in my lifetime of now almost 60 years, I have seen a dramatic shift, a dramatic change in the way that we view how things are done. Here's what I've noticed. More and more, we no longer share our opinions. We don't want to risk it. It's not worth it. We don't want to step on toes, nor do we want to be judged. I believe that almost more than anything, fear is now driving what is shared or not. I will share with you that in 24 years of ministry, I have never once from a pulpit shared my political affiliation. It has nothing to do with trying to keep politics out of the, out of the pulpit. If anyone asks, I share but the risks are greater today than at any other time in my history. Why? Because today, even within the greater church, and even more specifically in the greater United Methodist Church, the annual conference with colleagues, we do in fact pigeonhole, judge, and I think have little grace. And the discussions that were companionable a while back seem to have become lines drawn invisibly in the sand, delineating friend from enemy. And that's the greater church. What a tragedy that in the one place where it's be safest to share of ourselves, it has become dangerous. And I will share personally, ironically enough, one of my heroes politically was in first service this morning. Mel Woodworth, who was, uh, and we, we, we are on opposite ends on many things theologically but he, he, he sat right back there and came with Candace, his wife, this morning and heard this sermon, and we had a great conversation afterwards. He has been one of the most active political voices that I think in many ways has represented that scripture and was prophetic in that way. But we have entered that time, and it's not just in the church where those lines seem to be drawn in the sand. I see it all too often on TV or listening to any, and I listen to a ton of talk shows, and, and I watch the political climate even in the midst of Bellevue and Issaquah, and it, it appears to me as though those lines have also been drawn here. 
that if you believe the way I do and if you talk the way I do and if you come down on that political kind of same arena as I occupy, then by golly, you are a friend. But if you come down on the opposite side, you're the enemy. And again, I will tell you, at the end of this sermon, I will share with you where I stand politically. And believe me, I have struggled with the risk of it. Why do we talk about this today? Because I have to tell you that if you look at those definitions of politics as having to do with citizens and the affairs of a community, Jesus was as political as it gets. Every single one of his responses was political. If you look at that kind of definition of that word, every single one was political. So therefore, if we are followers of Jesus and we look at some of the words on this small little cross and then we look at it as it kind of encompasses the globe, then we too have a responsibility to be political. We do. We have a responsibility to take stands. We have a responsibility to be vocal. We have a responsibility to take action that will influence and impact the citizenry around us and potentially even the world. But we have to remember the foundation from which we must come. And it begins with the Beatitudes and moves then into this scripture. So let's unwrap this scripture a little bit. Micah 6.8, tiny little verse, very, very easily memorized. Micah 6.8, look at this. What does the Lord require of you? What's interesting about this scripture is that there is in a Bible that is accurate no quotation marks in the response. There is no comma, no semicolon, nothing. This next sentence, and it's accurate on here, other than there should be a period at the end, but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require of you? Here's my fear of where we've come and what has kind of driven some of this, particularly in churches. And even with Mel sitting here this morning, was able to say this. Justice seems to have become the defining element of everything that we do. The problem is we don't share it with the rest of this scripture in mind very often. It has become this kind of definition of vehemence. And we've shared justice in a visceral way that causes damage to others who may not agree with our view of justice. It has become the focus, and we've forgotten, seem to have forgotten the other two elements of this. That if we are to do justice, and, and by the way, when you look at the word justice, it doesn't just mean work with the poor. Justice also means relationships that we have with each other. But look at the other two phrases. We are to love kindness. And we are to walk humbly. And I couldn't help but go back to the the lesson of the Beatitudes. We studied this for a year last year. A year. And what was that first of the Beatitudes? Blessed are you who understand your own spiritual poverty. And that is number one to begin there. But then you have to look at beatitude number seven. Blessed are the peacemakers. And that is what we are seeking to do, is to bring peace no matter where and no matter what. 
And in between that first one and that seventh one are, are words like mercy and compassion and love. I don't see visceral in there anywhere. I see passion. But I see it shared, framed in these other words. You've heard it, O humanity, or mortals. This is what the Lord requires of you. These three elements working in conjunction with each other. They are inseparable. I will tell you that as core leadership team comes together tomorrow evening, I shared with them a six-page document about where I see this church going, the vision for this church. And let me just give you a couple pieces of that this morning. My vision for this church is that we go back to this author and use this word that this church become a place of con- as conversation center, a center of conversation, of exploration, of bringing in theologians and politicians and others from around the globe to come to this church so that we might engage in conversation and have people being able to come here and share in the safety of this place where they stand. But in the midst of that, the goal of that is to sharpen each other. As I said last week, like iron on iron. And remember the fragility that I talked about of iron coming against iron. We do it in fragile ways understanding that it's a fragile conversation, but it's a worthwhile conversation because we strengthen each other when we're able to talk with each other that way, and especially when defined by this, that we become that place. I I talked at first service about having now gone up to Bellevue College and looked around up there and seeing the perception of those students around what a pastor in a church is, and it's not that. A pastor is someone who judges. A church is a place that does the same. And what these folks want to do is engage in conversation so that they can come down to a place and realize a place where they can stand and take stands. But they need a place that's safe where they can explore their own spirituality. Why can't we be that place? Why can't we be that place? And a place where you can explore some of the political things that I just talked about at the beginning of this sermon. A place where we can explore things like gun control. A place where we can explore things like war. What if we became that safe place where we could explore those kinds of things? What if, what if we could? But beyond that, the other thing that I said, and this is a quote out of that document, in that regard, as we look at loving our neighbor, that we become politically active, spiritually focused, and action-oriented. Those are my hopes for this church. As preparing for the sermon, I sent out that, uh, that thing that many of you received last Thursday that talks about where I'm going to go with the sermon this Sunday, and I asked you to do two things. I ask you to place yourself unapologetically on this political spectrum. And I'll go back through it again. And where would you place yourself? Ultra-conservative being at the window on the right. Ultra-liberal being beyond the piano to the window on the left. If I, was, if I could force you to come and stand up here somewhere along this line, where would you stand? Unapologetically, where would you stand? 
And if you knew you could do it without fear, would it make it easier for you to come up and take that kind of stand? I look at this congregation, I look at this group this morning. You're different than first service. You are much more diverse. You, you are much more spread out on this line, I believe. But where do you stand? Second, I ask you to memorize this verse. And have this verse become the evaluative element for all of us as we come into whatever the discussion may be as a church. And we look at justice in the church and around the church. And we come with loving kindness. And that every one of us walks humbly. But now I'm going to ask you to do two more things this morning. Two more things. We live in a country that makes decisions corporately. And so I ask you, I ask you, as your pastor, to participate in the political arena. And one way to do that is to vote. No matter how large or how small the election may be, that you vote. And beyond vote, I ask you to participate unapologetically in what's going on in the community around us and in the world. That you voice your opinions. But, I want to remind you that sometimes the most beautiful and the most listened to voices are those that come with intelligent humility. And that brings me to the second piece. What I'm asking of you as you participate is that you look at all of those issues that you participate in wherever you come down on all of those issues. But what I'm asking you to do is to approach it with intelligence. I love Wesley because Wesley, in his four elements of what makes us who we are, talks about being grounded in Scripture first and foremost. To be guided by tradition and experience and to also be guided by reason study, using our brains. Whatever the issue is, I ask that you not take your opinions from whether it be NPR or Fox News Network and say that's where I come down, but to study the issues much more significantly than what you may just be hearing from the news. To look at all sides of whatever that issue may be. All sides. And then to come down and voice your opinion but again, with this scripture in mind. And friends, if you haven't done that kind of work around these issues, whatever the issue may be, you're not ready to voice your opinion. Beyond that, again, I pray that this church continues to grow into becoming conversation central. We're together and into the greater community as followers of Christ first. We speak as companionable. Do you hear that word? Companionable. Walking together. Companion. Companionable individuals who walk together down this road. The author of Unstoppable that young teenager who was in that restaurant that his parents owned, whose life he would now say was defined as much by that than anything else. You ready? 
Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader. The book is phenomenal. It's a little thick in its reading. It's Ralph Nader. But it is a worthwhile read. And he is absolutely convinced that we have entered into a new time. A bridge building. And that this new time is, in fact, unstoppable. Might we show also in Bellevue and Issaquah the way forward with that in mind. And I will share with you, much to the chagrin of my parents, now you know where I'm going, much to the chagrin of my parents, and believe me, over the last 40 years or 35 years since I've affiliated with this party, we have had interesting conversations. And sometimes we have just chosen not to discuss anymore. And I have been told by folks in this sanctuary this morning that I should never share this with you. But I'm going to share it with you. I am a Republican. (laughs) Can I come sit with you? (laughs) There are more, more Republicans in first service than there are in second, I think. But I am a moderate Republican. You know what I did for a living before. And it was one of the reasons that I became a Republican was because of the work that I saw being done uh, in the world. I don't like, matter of fact, I, I can use stronger language about where my party has come over the last 15 years. And in many ways, I am disgusted by where my party has come over the last 15 years. It does not mean that I leave the party. It does mean that I help try and reform the party. I'm a moderate Republican, and I have a political hero And I'm proud of that political hero. And I am deeply proud that I have known him personally for many, many years and have watched his career and had conversations with him. And my mom was his senior executive for 10 years. So worked intimately with him for 10 years. And ironically enough, as I brought Adam in to his office one day, and he was probably four or five months old. Nah, it's probably younger than that. I don't know when they first laugh. I would talk before that. So uh, I promise I wouldn't engage you in sermons anymore. I'm so sorry. I brought him in in this little, you know, the, the capacinet kind of carrying case, and I set him down on, on the desk, and he came out, and as soon as he looked over the edge, he burst into laughter. Adam, not the guy. Adam, this little baby, burst into laughter as this guy put his head over the bassinet. His name is Dan Evans. Dan Evans, two-term governor, one-term senator. And I believe and have always believed and continue to believe to this day that Dan Evans is one of the last great statesmen in this country. Many of you may have seen his editorial written last week in the Times. Dan is my political hero. I seek to be that kind of person who wants to hear all sides before making a decision. So where do you stand? Where do you stand? Who do you follow? Jesus, I hope, first. Because that has to define everything else. But beyond that, let's talk about how we might be able to create a community where engaging in these conversations can be fun, safe, just, 
filled with mercy, humble, and life-transforming for anyone who walks in these doors of any church that I have ever served. I have the greatest hope that this church can become that. And it is one of the reasons why I have said to the bishop, no, I want to stay. Now that you know what I am, you may want to kick me out. (laughs) Can I remind you of the scripture? (laughs) Where do you stand, friends? Let's become conversation central. Let's become companionable individuals who come together as a body of Christ. And let's do it with great, great love and grace. Will you pray with me? God, help us be political. Help us be political. But not in politi- not political in the way that we see all too often today where anyone who disagrees with me is my enemy. But let's be political in the fact that we have the opportunity to influence a community unlike, I think, any other church in this community. And I believe it's time to take that on. We are diverse. We are loving. We are grace-filled. We are intelligent, studied, and passionate. And all those things are gifts. And now we've been called to take it further. And let us do so. By your grace by your direction, being led by that cross and that flame that define us as your children who are called United Methodists. Breathe into us that spirit. Strangely warm our hearts. All this we ask in the name of the one we seek to follow, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.